0: I mentioned last night that I'd just come back from getting the great privilege of sitting a 10-day retreat with the Venerable Ajahn Sumedho. And um, uh, he had one message over and over again in this retreat and he did not vary at all. And so he basically had like six sentences that he was repeating, I don't know, hundreds of times and really making one very uh, important and subtle point over and over and over again. We're not going to do that with you in this retreat. Mm -hmm. We're going to take you through a a whole journey of of exploration in, in regards to kind of how the practice unfolds and uh, where it goes, and, and, and the fruits of that practice over these, these evenings together. And then in the morning instructions, it will be specifically about how to be skillful in your meditation practice. So about 2,600 years ago now, uh, in what was called the, what is now called the Axial Age, where all around the world, particularly from China to Greece, there developed these... Uh, these uh, incredible thinkers and spiritual leaders and uh, the spiritual visionaries, and they sort of arose out of nowhere in some ways because there'd certainly been a lot of—we're uh, told by scholars there'd been a lot of ferment. But why that time did it take? It's all mysterious because there's—you can trace it in a lot of different cultures, and there it was; it all arose together. And certainly, in the great civilization of India, there uh, th- this arose, and there uh, there was a baby born, and um, th- this this baby uh, was uh, uh, raised by a very loving father, who is a very fa- a protective father. One could argue, in modern terms, way too protective, but nonetheless quite protective and. Uh, to the the point that he wanted to have the Buddha, we are told, not exposed to any of the harshness of this reality. Now, uh, he was born into a warrior clan, so it's uh, somewhat mysterious to me as to why that would have been, uh, why he would have been motivated to protect his son in that way because warriors have to be conditioned to harshness. And in fact, this, this baby... Who, uh, had many names throughout his life, from Siddhartha to Gautama to uh, the Buddha, um, was a warrior, but uh, turned out to be a spiritual warrior. And he could have been either a spiritual warrior or a great king, it is, it is said uh, in, the, in the suttas. Uh, but he, he went in this direction. He would have been one or the other. And so in this, in in the legend has it that it was only as a, uh, really a young man, young adult, that he was exposed to the truth of life and death Uh, and by first seeing someone who was quite aged and then encountering someone who was quite sick and then encountering a dead body, a corpse. And these are the heavenly messengers as we refer to them today. And then... Uh, uh, in the midst of all of this shock, he uh, encountered a wandering ascetic, and he asked his attendant, who is that? Who is that? There's a, those of you who follow the Warriors, Warriors basketball game, there's one announcer who will say, mama, who is that man? Or no, mama, there goes that man. Love that phrase. So, But there was some recognition of something we're told in in, in this uh, this teaching about that. And um, I I go along with that just fine. But I also, from a modern perspective, reflect on a whole different uh, aspect of this. The Buddha's mother died as part of his birth. So from a modern perspective, the Buddha grew up knowing the truth of life and death. <clears throat> knowing the truth that life brings death and that that birth is, uh, for each of us is, as the Venerable Samedo likes to say, that being born is a death sentence. Mm-hmm. How could he not have known that? His, uh, his, his father married his mother's sister, which was uh, common in that, uh, that day and age. And uh, by all accounts, uh, the Buddha and his stepmother were very, very close and had a loving relationship. She la- later on became a student, a, dis- a disciple of the Buddha. But nonetheless, there was that experience. And that experience points to the dilemma of the manifest realm, this world in which we live. And uh, various religious uh, backgrounds have uh, accounted for why it's like this in uh, a lot of different ways. In Buddhism, uh, it's not accounted for why it's like that. It's simply said that this is the way it is. And that the way out of the dilemma of the uncertainty and uh, the inevitable Things falling apart for each of us, in the short term, middle term, and long term, as they do, they have fall apart in a moment, in a day, a week, a month, a year, whatever it may be, ten years. Different things, at their own right, of of not ever coming together, being not so good when they're together, and then all passing anyway. And so, and so uh, there there is that there was that there was what to do about this dilemma which is most epitomized by the fact that we all die. But that we all die, it captures that every moment dies. So our most happy moment passes away to another moment. Sometimes, because we're so untrained, it only passes away because our mind is so greedy. So, for instance, uh, you take your friend or your lover on this great hike, you go up Mount Tam out here and there's this one place you can go and if you get there right at sunset you're looking at the ocean and the beach and you get to see the Sun sink into the ocean. So that's if if you're there with your, your great friend, your lover, it's a poignant moment on a clear day, poignant. But if that were you standing there in that moment What would happen after that first few moments of, oh, that's so beautiful, and oh. Then, oh, I'll take a picture of it. Or, you know, I should do this more often. Or, I need to bring so-and-so. We actually don't stay even with our happy moments, which is so surprising in terms of that we're supposed to be so desirous of these happy moments, but when we have them, Instead of staying with them, we imagine getting more, justifying having what we have, and so on and so forth. We get afraid that someone's going to take it from us, or we don't feel worthy of having it in the first place. This is the dilemma of this realm in terms of the nature of our minds and the way that everything in this realm is arising and passing in Buddhism, the, the, any formation that makes up a moment, it's called car,s and, uh, and this retreat that I was just attending, the message over and over again is you're not this samkar No matter what the samkar is, whether it's you're having a moment of great insight, or you're being very skillful in the way you're considering something, or you're being very unskillful, it's all arising and passing. Don't identify with any of it. Don't identify. Rest back, rest back in that awareness, the knowing of awareness. Rest back in that, that's reliable, not these changing formations that arise and pass. So in, in this regard with the Buddha, he, uh, uh, he for whatever reason and it came about, he felt like f- the meaningfulness of his life was to resolve how to live. And the fact of ever-changing conditions. That this was was a dilemma. And being of a warrior clan, he was going to go out and conquer this. He was going to find a solution here. And he did. He did leave home. He left home soon after his, his son was born. Very tough for Westerners to hear sometimes about that. But he did leave home at that time. One Could also reflect on the fact that he had a son born and the mother didn't die, and how that both freed him and made more poignant ever. Why is it this way? Why one time does the mother die and the other time the mother doesn't die? What's the nature of this realm? How are we supposed to relate to all of this? How does does my heart find peace? How does my mind not stay uneasy? He went out to find out. He wanted to find out how to live in relation to all of this. And amazingly enough, he did. He did. He spent many years as an ascetic. Uh, He uh, 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 first learned concentration from uh, uh, the two of the great masters of his time, where he went and studied with them. And when I say concentration, I mean what's called samadhi or these deep absorption states. And that was one of the possible solutions that people were postulating in this spiritual age. That one would achieve certain mental states. And those mental states were an escape from the dilemma of this. Because you weren't in this realm of all of these changing conditions where everything falls apart. And maybe if you could get there in some way that you would stay in that mental state. Uh, but in fact, as those of you who have more experience, you can f- have a wonderful uh, temporary state in meditation. But then when you come back, it's the same old you who comes back. And that's the sh- that's the shortcoming of that. And both of these uh, teachers invited the Buddha to teach with them because they said, you have learned what we have to teach. In each instance, he says, thank you, but no thank you, because I haven't found what I'm looking for. What is an end to this dilemma, an end to this uh, uh, unease of a life that we have as human beings? How does one reconcile oneself to this? How does one have a lasting peace, a lasting sense of joy, a lasting sense of well-being that's somehow not based on all of these ever-changing conditions. How does one do that? And so then he did this whole part of being a, an extreme renunciate where he almost starved himself to death for a long period of time, along with certain of his uh, the fellow seekers. And um, he realized at one point that didn't work either, that he was simply going to die. And the, again, this was quite common in that age. People did all sorts of body uh, renunciations of all kinds of extremes. And some of that is still going on to this day, of course. And it was not just in the Indian tradition. It, was, it showed up in the Catholic tradition too, all the different kinds of ways that, this, that people have always thought, well, I'll conquer this body. I'll beat it into submission. I will cease to identify with it. That was a philosophy. That was a theory has not proven to work, (laughs) period. No one's found a way that that's worked that we've all ever heard of, but still goes on to this day, people trying. And then finally, he had a a kind of realization, a kind of insight, that no, there was a middle way, that indulgence wasn't the way, but neither was extreme asceticism, that there was some way of ease of a relaxed mind, and if one is patient and one sits in that relaxed mind inquiring in relation to all of this, that there will arise insight as to its true nature and insight as to how to relate to the true nature of this realm. So both insight and understanding what it is, its nature. And this the nature, nature's a big uh, Phrase. It's a big understanding uh, in in uh, Theravada Buddhism that, that it, that's that's nature, meaning it's lawful, meaning that it's not your fault. It's nature. It's the way it is. It's nature. So a, a good a good word to be familiar with in that way. And so he found that there this middle way that that, that one if if one would not go to any extreme or another and but would stay present and keep inquiring that was one went deeper and deeper, not deeper into just absorption practices where the mind gets uh, uh, united with a single object, which can even lead into uh, the mind being completely empty, but rather being united uh, in a way that that objects can arise and be examined and reflected on and, and all of these skillful means can be applied such that insight arises. And that's why it's called insight practice or Vipassana practice. In Theravadan Buddhism, we utilize samadhi. You'll hear more about that. We also utilize what's called the Brahma Viharas of loving kindness and compassion and so forth. But the essential practice is one of cultivating insight. Cultivating insight. Insight as to how it is and then given how it is, how... We can wisely relate to it, compassionately relate to it with wisdom and compassion. The chief tool that is used in insight practice is mindfulness, sati, S-I-T-I, S-A-T-I. That's this mindfulness is the tool. Mindfulness is a form of paying attention, of paying attention to this moment, there can be a mindfulness of uh, uh, that's uh, pedestrian, that's not really paying attention to the moment. It can be simply looking for advantage. And uh, that is one of the dilemmas as uh, people move into secular mindfulness, is that the, the, the mindfulness of the Buddha is to bring about the end of suffering. So that's the mindfulness of the Buddha. Mindfulness, sati, is part of the Eightfold Path, which... We'll also touch on in a few minutes. And it's not separable from the ethics aspect and um, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the uh, wisdom aspects of the Eightfold Path. So the this sati, this mindfulness of the Buddha has one end and one end only. The Buddha said, I teach one thing and one thing only. Suffering, this word dukkha, translated as suffering, but just as easily or maybe better, unsatisfactoriness, unreliableness of this realm. It's not reliable. It's going to turn on you any moment. You can never fully relax because you never know when. You never know what's going to happen next. It won't stick around very long. So it's unreliable. It's unsatisfactory because it's not lasting and it doesn't connect to an essence in so much of the time without... The mind being trained, except in really extraordinary moments when we are, all human beings are touched with that into the essence, but not so usual. And, and so I teach one thing and one thing only, he said. Suffering and the end of suffering. And people will say, but that's two things, suffering and the end of suffering. No, that's two sides of a coin. You're either suffering or you're not suffering. It's, it's, it's a, a binary, you know switch is this way or this way, just like in your software programs. So I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering, the end of suffering. Another time he was walking through the woods with a, a, a group of his monastics, and he stopped and he picked up this handful of leaves, and he said, so uh, if you look at all the leaves in, in this forest and you think of all the leaves and all the forest in this world, are there more leaves in the, in the trees of this forest or more leaves in my hand? Not being dumb, they said, oh, there's more leaves in all the trees of the forest. And he said, just so. What I know is like the leaves on the trees of all the forest. But what I teach is this handful of leaves. What I teach is this handful of leaves. When I first heard that, I had some views and opinions about that. <laughs> uh, because I was going, oh, but you should have shared more of your knowledge, you know, and, you know, da-da-da-da. I had a lot of feelings because uh, there are people who have knowledge. It's, it's really true about a lot of different things. We accept that there are scientists who have knowledge, and uh, we, we accept other fields of knowledge, but we don't tend to th- uh, be so accepting of that and. Uh, in our our uh, inner uh understanding our our spiritual understanding or whatever it may be, we're a little more reluctant to really uh accept that people have knowledge, but they do there are people who have knowledge varying degrees, and they may have knowledge and not be able to implement it and live it out and yet they really have the real stuff, but they can't live it out because of of conditions in in their own mind, but they had enough. Togetherness to, to actually acquire knowledge. Not information. Information is widely held. A lot of people have information. Fewer people have knowledge. And fewer, by far, people have the mastery that allows them to live out the knowledge they have. We can learn from people that have information. We can learn from people that have knowledge. And if we're ready, we can learn from people that have Mastery. You've got to have enough uh, knowledge yourself or at least a lot of information to be able to track sometimes when it's someone with mastery because they're not speaking quite the same way we are. So uh, th- this, is what he, this is what his goal was. His goal was, he said many times, the direct path, the direct path. And so why didn't he teach all of those other things? Because it wasn't part of the direct path. Those of you in business and uh, engineering and so forth, you, you know this term, the critical path, that in, in getting a project done, there's lots of things you'd like to get done, but there are certain things that are critical path, that you've got to get these things done for the whole thing to happen. It'll be nice if this part of the software works in that part. but It's not essential, but there are certain things that are essential. And that was his view in his own way, this direct path. The direct path to what? To the end of suffering. How does that look in life? To be able to recognize what is suffering and what is not suffering? Which you would think would be easy, but it is not, I assure you. And maybe by the end of this retreat, those of you who are newer to this, you will know more of what we mean by that. And those of you who have been at a number of these retreats, you know for yourself just how true that is, and how confusing it is, because something can feel so good, but if we embrace it and we cling to it, bad news, bad news. That's, it looks like happiness, but it's suffering. And you can think of uh, opening the refrigerator in the middle of the night, and a moment of that when it looks good at that moment, but it's really suffering. You can think about uh, abuse of, of alcohol, or drugs, or sexuality or just uh, getting attention. There's all of these ways that we actually experience this over and over again. But again, that's at the information level. At the knowledge level, it's more subtle what is meant. by And again, we will, we will cover this. And so that's what he was doing. He was teaching this direct path. And uh, it came about uh, that he ended up spending around 40 years wandering around northern India Offering these teachings, which is remarkable, uh, without question, because of the legends, all the in the endless stories that uh, he he could have uh, he could have in many ways had a comfortable life, or he could have simply stayed in his meditative states and blissed out. Instead, he t- he chose to drag himself walking all around India, uh, and uh, and uh, the India of today and the India of that time, just like this country or any country, was, was different in a lot of ways. So it was a very prosperous country without, uh, without uh, the population issues that it has today. That was a Western effect, that, that India and its population <laughs> dilemma. So, um, they, uh, so he, he, that's what he chose to do. And he was never teaching Buddhism. He was teaching Dhamma. Dhamma translate as the way it is. The truth of the way it is. The knowing the way it is. This is Dhamma. This is the way it is. It's like this. This is the nature of things. This is how to relate to things given that this is their nature. It's Dhamma. It's the way it is. Many, many people have translated it so many different ways. But that, that essence of it, so as as. Uh, as as Tori was speaking last night uh, in those moments when we have deep insight we are the Buddha knowing the Dhamma we are the Buddha knowing the Dhamma not the historical Buddha but this capacity of mind, heart to have realization to have insights The insights into what? to the way it is insights into what causes unhappiness and what brings happiness, what brings peace versus unease, what brings contentment versus restlessness and wanting. That's what we're learning. We're learning how to do this. Uh, the Buddha said the, the, the Dhamma is good in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. And uh, when we have a little bit of understanding, we have a little more peace. When we have more understanding, we have more peace, more contentment, more, more contextualization so that we're not whipped around by this uh, uh, untrained mind in, in the same way. We're not, we're not defined by conditions, but rather we're defined by the values by which we're choosing to live. Big difference, big difference. And so we grow, we evolve, we mature into this. We may, and some of you on this retreat, may have big moments, really big moments, like you were in a state that, that you go, that, this is the state towards liberation or whatever it may be. And you go, oh, I've arrived. But then what you discover, no, you had that state of mind for a moment, that arriving in that as a level of being is a whole nother matter. Uh, a very dear friend of mine spent, oh my goodness, 40 years trying to get back to a state he had had when he was a young man and and uh, going on retreat after retreat, doing all these different kinds of experiences, looking for that state to finally he came to Vipassana and heard someone saying like what I'm saying to you. He realized, well, of course, <laughs> and and finally let that go. And, his, his, his practice has really grown since then. So as the Buddha did all of this, this, this training and this, um, the, this teaching different people, he, he discovered that with different people he had to use a lot of different ways of describing what was going on because they were at different levels of understanding, they had different cultural backgrounds, they came with different uh, life experiences. And we do that as best we're able. we try to cover the waterfront in terms of life experiences uh, as best we can about cultures we're you know we're all limited in our cultural understanding uh, different personalities and so forth we we, t- we try to give a lot of different examples and and uh, uh, help you find you know resonance with something that's been said over time uh, uh he started uh, formulating more and more his teachings, and um, uh, this still happens today with people that 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 discover a way to do something. This will be true of healers that a healer can uh, find a way to really kind of magically make some change in your shoulder, your knee, or whatever it is. And everybody goes, oh, that's wonderful. I want you to teach me how to do it. But you see, the, the, the healer didn't actually have a way to do it. They just did it. But now if you're going to teach someone, you have to create protocol in order to teach because the person doesn't already have it. So you can't just refer to what, they, you, the, the per, you, what you already have. Does this make sense to you? There's the necessity of protocol. And uh, uh, the, the, in the Buddhist th- terms, it takes, particularly Theravada Buddhism, it takes the form of lists. So there's a number of lists that are very important. You'll hear about the five hindrances, the seven awakening factors, and so forth. Those are a systematic way of, of being able to organize how to see, how to... The the Buddha at the time that he was trying to decide whether or not to teach uh, had a visitor who said, "There are those who have only little dust in their eyes," and so um, and and so it is with these lists. It's to help those of us who we hope have little dust in our eyes and hopefully are uh, reducing that dust all the time through the sincerity, our sincerity, even more than practice, that we sincerely wish to not cause suffering to ourselves or no, another. that not, not that we completely wish that, but that there's enough of that that we're really sincere, that it's real enough. Because we all choose suffering all the time that we actually know it's suffering because we're caught in lust or anger or whatever. So, let, I mean, let's stay real. Let's, let's, we can't believe that we're 100% idealistic, but there's uh, sufficient, good enough, idealism, good enough commitment uh, to the path, good enough to say, you know, I really do, if, if there is a way, a better way to live, as Thich Nhat Hanh describes this practice, a better way to live, if there is a better way to live I want to see if that's true and I want to see if it applies to me. That's the level of, of sincerity we're talking about here. And again, if you can, beware of getting into any kind of perfectionism The Buddha was not trying to uh, cure people's, uh, all their uh, mental afflictions, all of their character shortcomings. He was not trying to do that. He was teaching the direct path so that recognition, that recognition and knowing we have choice and knowing the wisdom of the choice would carry us rather than we become, you know, these ideal practitioners and then we get enlightened. No, we're, we're, not, we're not cleaning everything up. We're cleaning things up enough, and then we use the rest as a, a, a stimulus, as, as informing, as teachers to us, uh, as purification on the path. I went through my own level of confusion about that, is why I tell that to you, because I was going I, I was defining myself by all of my limitations, which were quite real and genuine and um, so I was not exaggerating the limitations unfortunately but I did come to see that those limitations were never going to they were too many to get cleaned up in that way but that there was a critical path that there was a through line through practice that I could follow so then the Buddha the Buddha. Taught what is called the Satipatthana Sutta. The suttas are the collections of the Buddha's teachings. There's a number of different collections, uh, and uh, there are the, the, some of the teachings are repeated in various other collections. And the, the, so the, the, the a sutta is an individual teaching that can be of, uh, a small length, or a middle length, or a, a fairly long. And so he taught this, this uh, what's sometimes called the four foundations of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta, or the four establishments of mindfulness, how you establish mindfulness for yourself. So this is a list. It's a list. It's a protocol. It's, it, it, you go to this, to this, to this, to this. Is this the only way to do it? No. But it is a protocol. It's a protocol that has proven to be reliable for a very long time for many, many thousands of people. So uh, uh, my advice is that you you first do the protocol and then you, you you do your jazz version. You make your riffs on the protocol. But it's like with music, if you're, going to, if you're going to start playing jazz before you actually know how, <laughs> how, to, how to play the basic, basic tune, the basic chords and all this, it usually doesn't work out so well. We actually have another word for that rather than music. We call it noise. So um, the same can happen in our spiritual practice where instead of being lyrical, we're making noise. So the four foundations of mindfulness, the four four establishments of mindfulness, we're going to be taking you through on this retreat. But in this contextual way, the way I'm doing tonight, many of you that have been here have heard uh, Satipatthana Sutta teachings many, many times. But we are trying to create more uh, context that will uh, sort of give you an overview, a, a larger point of view, like Uh, 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 so that you can be, in a given moment, the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. The first of these four foundations, these four establishments, is establishing a mindfulness, a a sati in relation to the body. So uh, in the, in, uh, the, the morning meditation, was uh, beautifully reminding us just to come back in the body, just to be there in the body. And of all of the uh, establishments of mindfulness, the Buddha actually gave more instruction for being in the body than any of them, which really surprised me. Uh, But uh, I would take that to mean the emphasis of how important it is. Some of us are very aware of the body and what's going on in the body but don't actually associate it with our emotional states. Some of us are very aware of our emotional states but don't notice it in the body and so forth. There's many different ways we, we, we have an inclination of mind, habit of mind in relation to the body. But in, in, uh, as we learn this, we see that oftentimes our mental state is more clearly reflected in the body than reflected in our mind, that our mind, we don't know, we may not even recognize we're angry. Uh, this, uh, 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 I was listening to a father yesterday before I came out here, and he was talking about his daughter reporting all of this pain in her belly. He's thinking, oh, I must be, have something really wrong with me. And uh, she's a young woman and uh, has a lot of emotional the stress and that pain in her belly is most likely of course her anger, her <coughs> her uncertainty. <coughs> so we can we can have physical sensations <coughs> for a long time. I may start coughing by the way. I'm not made uncomfortable by this, so I don't want you to be uncomfortable. I traveled uh, I got up at 4:30 this time on a Saturday morning, last Saturday morning, and did not go to sleep till 11 o'clock Monday night. So I put myself <coughs> in a vulnerable situation. So with the awareness of the body, <coughs> we are grounding. and we will learn the body in terms of sensations. Postures, like we were learning today. The elements, earth, air, fire, water. And um, we won't cover the whole spectrum. There's not time for that. And then we go on to uh, the recognition, establishing mindfulness of the tonality of every moment. It's called Vedna. And every moment of our life, it registers with us with a little tonality of pleasant or unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. This is a very important recognition. Oftentimes, if habit of mind is not causing us to say or do something or be in a certain uh, mood or emotional state. It is the fact that the, the, the pleasant or unpleasant tonality is really affecting us. Now, we're all pretty good at when we're really, something's really unpleasant, boy, we recognize that. If it's really pleasant, we recognize that. But these sort of in between states, we're not so good at recognizing. And they often affect the mood. So someone passes you in the hallway at work and you think they're frowning at you. Why are they mad at me? If it's your boss, even worse still. But but there starts this little papancha mind, this proliferation of thought based on a small stimulation which may have been out of complete delusion. They're, They're not even frowning, they're thinking about something or they're frowning about what someone just said to them. But we make it about us. So this, you have a moment's thought on the cushion, and it's conditioning what you do next, and you don't notice it. So on the cushion, we learn to see this and learn a. <coughs> we learn a degree of independence from the vedna. So if it's pleasant, it's just pleasant. We're interested in knowing it's pleasant, but we're not investing in getting the pleasant. We certainly prefer the pleasant, but we're not, that's not what we're holding on to. We don't cling to having pleasant. If it's unpleasant, we certainly would prefer not to have un- body pain unpleasantness or self-judgment unpleasantness. But it's just unpleasant if we're self-judging, if the body's hurting. you know, Knee ache feels like this. It's just unpleasant. It's not defining us unless we choose to let it define us. And we learn how more and more to not be defined by pleasant and unpleasant. There, I, in uh, Dancing with Life, which is the book I did based on uh, the Venerable Tomatoes teachings of the Four Noble Truths, I make this point over and over again. That if we if we if our life is controlled by pleasant and unpleasant, and our greed or aversion to pleasant and unpleasant, it's a way of dancing with life. But it's like being puppets on the string of pleasant and unpleasant. Is that really how you want to live? You know, you know. Do, oh, this person like me or not like me? Is that really how you want to live? A person that lives on pleasant and unpleasant is living a reactive life reactive because you're you're reacting to the stimulus external stimulus internal stimulus stimulus of another person of the environment it's too hot it's too cold internal you know you're sick (laughs) you're uh you're hungry or you really feel good you're in a good mood you're you're just dancing on those two strings it's dancing of a sort on the other hand, if you have a freedom, if you have a separation from pleasant and unpleasant, when it's just pleasant, you're not denying it, you're in fact more interested in knowing it than people who live by it. Because you understand by knowing it and having insight into it, this remembering, there's a remembering aspect of society of mindfulness, then you don't get controlled by it. And if you're not controlled by it, then you're living a responsive life. You're living a responsive life. And this starts happening immediately as you start understanding this. So it's not like you come to 10 retreats or 20 retreats, and then suddenly your life starts to improve. Once you start having a a level of understanding of something, any level of understanding, your life has improved that much in terms of peace, contentment, recognition, a sense of authenticity, and so forth. Being able to claim yourself for yourself. So very important, this vedna, this pleasant and unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And then the third foundation of mindfulness is that of the mind states that arise. So there can be anger mind states, there can be lustful mind states, there can be very wonderful (laughs) mind states, and there's a list of them that are described in the sutta. And we learn to recognize both their presence and their absence. So if you want to feel better about yourself at some point in this retreat, you can be sitting there and going, oh, you know, uh, oh, my body's hurting and I'm uncomfortable. Oh, but I don't have any anger in my mind. Oh, look at that. I'm that far in this moment liberated. There's no anger in the mind. We notice, we, we fail oftentimes to notice the, the wisdom of, of what's absent. So I, again, I hope that's clear enough. So you're noticing, is a mind state wholesome or unwholesome? But you're noticing the absence of unwholesome mind states as much as their presence. Because it's reinforcing when we notice, uh, we can think, oh, I'm an angry person. But if you notice the number of times you're not angry, then no, you're not an angry person. You You have a tendency towards angry mind states arising, but you're not an angry person. That's liberating. That gives you a base to really start to affect your experience. And then the fourth of the of the four establishments of mindfulness is that of the dhammas, the, these lists of the way things are, and uh, which are, are so uh, much help. And you will hear in a, a couple of days about these hindrances of mind, these mind states that arise that are hinder the mind. Hinder what? Hinder our ability to see clearly. Hinder our ability to have choice. Hinder our ability to have a sense of well-being. Very practical. And, uh, you know, there's only five of them, and uh, uh, it can seem like a lot at first, but it's, it's really not that much. And they all make such common sense that we can we can come to understand them. There's also a, a list about. Uh, the, what makes up a moment's experience. That's called the five aggregates, that these, these aggregates that make up a moment. And, and, and it's early Buddhist psychology, daunting in how advanced it was. In some ways we're only catching up with it now. So a moment's made up of, of some sort of contact, it's made in a feeling, it's recognition and so forth. And you'll maybe hear some about that, maybe not in this retreat. And then there's an emphasis on understanding that that most of what we have is sensory experience, sensory stimulation through the five senses of, of smell, taste, touch, hear, so forth. And also then the mind as a sensory organ itself. So thoughts generate thoughts. You know, hearing something can generate a thought, but the mind can generate its own thoughts. So it's referred to as the sixth sense base. And in Buddhist psychology, this is a big uh, mental recognition, these six sense bases. And uh, you can get overwhelmed with some of those teachings, but it's just basically saying that's how this realm works. Our stimulus comes through these six senses. And if we identify with them, that's not a wise relationship. But if we have a value based way of living, then we can have a wise relationship with whatever comes through these six senses. Awesome that somebody figured this out 2,600 years ago. It's it's unthinkable. And the other thing that's so amazing is all of the dhamma fits together. It's, ho- it's uh, holographic that way. You start with any one piece and you can get the whole thing. It's, it's, I can't imagine a mind that could do that. It's... It is an unsurpassable mind. <laughs> and then the other two of these uh, list is the seven awakening factors, which, which just like the five, the, the five hindrances are kind of what we have to work with uh, in one sense. These seven awakening factors are wholesome characteristics of mind, qualities of mind that we can learn and explore and really make a big difference in how much, we, uh, how much time and the depth and duration of these uh, uh, wholesome qualities of mind. I mean, we—it's not like that's some theoretical. It's not something I'm asking you to believe. It's come see for yourself. A e Pasaka, the Buddha would say, come see for yourself that you, and that re, it's really true, and uh, there, so that we can change. We human beings can actually change, perfectly change, totally change. That's getting to how many angels on the head of that pin but change so that it makes a real difference in our life, here and now? Absolutely. And uh, uh, so the fruits of all of this kind of work that we're doing is ease of mind, momentary uh, of some duration, of greater length, calmness of mind, peacefulness, a balanced mind that is what we call equanimity, where the mind is so balanced that when uh, things are happening, that are not pleasant at all. I just went through that and I've been sick for most of the last three years with one kind of ailment or another. And the equanimity was so steady, so reliable. All from practice, nothing, nothing to do with me as a person, just practice. Such a difference when the mind stays balanced during hard times. Joy and delight, the joy and delight become more subtle in a lot of ways. But richer in their subtlety, contentment of mind, freedom from wanting. What a big one. The amount of suffering we do over our wanting. And we cultivate wanting so that we can get a reward. But boy, do we pay for that. And we come to recognize that and we can change that relationship. Where you don't have to give up all wanting, but you really treat it differently. You don't believe your wanting mind at all. And then uh, freedom from fear, and freedom uh, uh, from being identified with the samskaras, from being identified with whatever you're imagining, feeling, uh, in any sense gate in this moment. You don't believe it's permanent anymore. You don't believe it's you. This is very subtle, and this is the last of the kind of things that may arise for many of us, but nonetheless, it's there. And then so these we will be working with these four establishments of mindfulness this is our our this is our uh, understanding exploration our wisdom understanding, and then the morning instructions is skillful means as I said now the final piece of the four establishments of mindfulness. You've gone through the body, you've gone through pleasant, unpleasant, you've really understood mind states, you've learned all these lists. The last thing that one fully is able to realize is the four noble truths. And the four noble truths, it's agreed by all the different schools of Buddhism, are the the teachings of the Buddha. And the first of the four noble truths is that there is dukkha, that there is this... um, uh, unsatisfactoriness to this realm. It's not that all is suffering. It's not that all is unsatisfactory. Not true at all. There's much delight. The Buddha has a whole list, I publish it here, about the kinds of happiness that human beings can have, including being debt-free, by the way. That's, he lists that as one. Um, so, but that, that, that in, in, inexorably tied up into anything that is created... Is there is dukkha in it? There's a kind of suffering in it unless one develops a different relationship to it. And so, and there's three kinds of dukkha. I'm not going. I don't have time to take you through that tonight. But the physical and emotional. There's a. That's the first kind. The second kind is the way of nature of everything changing. And the third is not feeling there there in our lives, which uh, is an existential dilemma, which Sartre and others talked about. Um, Buddha was way ahead as an existentialist and as a phenomenologist, those of you who were into that kind of thing in your college years or something. he was way, way ahead and much wiser. Uh, and then the, so the second noble truth is that that there is a cause to the suffering, meaning there's a, that the way we relate to our experience uh, is what defines it as so awful for us, what makes us so uneasy, so insecure, so lacking in peace. And that we, that we can change that. And um, uh, in the, the, the teaching of the Four Noble Truths that I learned for Long Paul from Venerable Tomato, is that uh, this practice that's in the Samyutta uh, Nakaya, that the Four Noble Truths contain 12 insights. And that one is to understand that each Noble Truth has three insights. An intellectual understanding of what's being said, then a practice instruction insight, and then a, a kind of, uh, gathering your fruit, recognizing what you've learned, what you've understood, and what you've learned. And with the second noble truth, the second inside of the second noble truth is to let loose of that in us, that thirst in us, that wanting, that clinging, that grasping that causes suffering, to let loose just for a moment. And so you'll hear us suggesting this at various times on the retreat, to so just let loose of of. What's causing whatever it's going on? You're complaining about your body hurting. Well, just let loose of complaining for a moment. The body will keep hurting, but is it bringing ease, the complaining? It may appear to it first, but does it really? Or does it reinforce it? And so forth, Many thousands and thousands of examples. The third noble truth is that there is an end to all of this. And the fourth noble truth is that there's a path away. And that path is a path that has eight folds, not eight separate things. There's not eight paths, but eight separate folds, eight aspects that make it a path. And again, mindfulness is part of that. And so that's the mindfulness of the Buddha is the mindfulness of the Eightfold Path. And it's inextricable from it. You can't take the mindfulness out of that and still be the Buddha's mindfulness. And so that's the way these two fit together, is one practices using the Satipatthana Sutta, one is gradually having all these realizations, and it ends in this full realization of of the Four Noble Truths. There's realization all along the way of the Four Noble Truths, of course, just like there's realization of everything. And all of the establishments of mindfulness, you're you're learning them all, you know, it's gradual. You're learning here and there, and you go faster here and slower there, and then you go faster there. And... It's, it's a smorgasbord kind of thing in that way. It's not like, you know, rote, linear in that sense. We're just opening. And yet some person will say something to you and you go, wow, that really makes sense. How come no one's ever said that in all these other retreats? And then you go back and look in your notes and there it is ten times. Just what you heard. We hear what we're able to hear. And it's great that when you hear it, and it's great that you think, why haven't I been told this before? That's all wonderful. That's not a problem because you're recognizing what—that something has happened here. So this is the journey that we have embarked upon. We're very happy to be taking this journey with you. We hope to serve you uh, in a way that is helpful and um, helpful. remembering about not judging or comparing or fixing your mind, as best you're able. You're going to judge over and over again. Of course, you're going to compare over and over again. You're going to fix over and over again. But insofar as you have choice, you're saying, okay, I'll choose not to do that. That's the empowerment to recognize when we have choice and then not to do it. In doing that very thing around judging or comparing, you're learning to let loose. But it's so easy and it's so immediate that it's a very good way to get your chops, you know, so that you really like learning to play the scales so you can, on the piano, so you can, um, you know, do jazz or anything, circle of fifths and all that. So let's just sit for a second here, just a few seconds. Letting loose of the words, tuning into your body. Tune into your heart space. and then notice any kind of thoughts. So, Thank you again. It's much. It's cl- it's time for our walking practice, and um, we really encourage you, even if you're going to go uh, to bed and not come for the last sit, to walk a few minutes, to come back into your body, and also let any wisdom that's been stirred in you. Get settled in inside you. You don't have to be reflecting on anything you've heard, but you're just being available. You're not like filling your mind with the task of getting ready for bed. So at least give yourself the walking. That's our encouragement. And we'll, we'll be back in here to sit with you. Uh, in, uh, at whatever the hour is on the schedule. The time. <laughs>